Acts chapter 4. So I want to open to the question. Follow me on this. Uh, what does it take for something to become true in your mind? Uh, what, what, is it, what does it take for something that, that you believe to be fully true to be something that you believe is fully true? Uh, here, here's some examples, okay? And it, it, um, do you believe that the world is round? <laughs> not, I'm not asking you an answer, okay? Do you believe that? Some of you do, okay? Some of you don't. What, what makes you believe that the world is round? How do you know it's round? How do you know? Um, have you been there? Have you, have you been to space? Have you gone all the way around it? Has anyone in here gone all the way around the world? Like in a circle? Like nobody has. Okay. So how do you know? How do you know it's round? You, you're believing certain things. What are you believing? You're believing for one, you're believing evidence. Okay. Um, but that evidence could or couldn't be true, right? Um, and by the way, not everybody believes the world is round. Okay. Um, you're believing eyewitness accounts. You're believing some people that said, no, we were up there and we went around it. You're, you're trusting that they're honest. You're trusting that they're, they're true. Um, you're trusting your intuition based on your experiences, right? The world kind of looks round. I mean, it kind of makes sense. You know, I mean, so, so those things are, are, are sort of leading you to believe that the world is round. Here's another one. Do you believe World War I happened? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Were you there? How do you know it was there? How do you know it happened? Somebody told you? Maybe you, know, maybe you had a grand, great-grandparent or something that, that was in it. Okay, so evidence. You know, somebody was there. You, you're trusting somebody that they were being honest. I mean, you, you know, you could be getting duped. You know, I don't know. But, but you're trusting eyewitness accounts. You're trusting evidence. You're trusting your intuition based off of reason and experience and things. I mean, maybe you can go see some of the, the monuments of World War I. Okay, here's, here's my point. My point is that you cannot escape faith. This idea that, that you can just sort of know things with absolute certainty, you really can't know much. You're always choosing to trust someone. We live in a weird time. We live in a time where our culture has pitted faith versus fact. Okay? Um, they, they, they've moved faith into this realm of something that really is just so subjective and so relative that nobody can be sure. So just keep your faith out of here. Let's talk about fact. Let's talk about science. All right, well, let's talk about science. Okay, science can teach us a lot. Science tells us certain things. But is science free of belief? You're trusting the scientist. You're trusting that he doesn't have some kind of agenda or she doesn't have some kind of an agenda. You're trusting that his, his tests are accurate. You're, you're trusting that his reporting is accurate. You're trusting that the book that it was written in is accurate. I mean, and science has been wrong before. I mean, we used to believe people, Right? I mean, come on, like, like science has been wrong. So, so the world is telling us that, that we should base all of our life just based off what is empirically provable and move faith out of the sphere of actually informing what we do or think. Okay, this, this is a, there's, there's different kind of sects of this thinking. One of them is, is scientism. It's this idea that we should only base what we do or what we think based off of what is scientifically empirically proven, okay? But the fact of the matter is, is you're still making belief. You're still having to believe something at that point. You're still choosing to believe something at that point. Faith and facts are not at odds. Uh, our culture really likes faith. What they don't like is faith in something. You ever notice that? Like people will applaud 
faith. Like, I'm just so glad. I sat down over lunch with the guy um, recently, and I, and I told him the gospel, and I told him what I do, and, and he was like, man, that's just so cool that you have faith. But he didn't really believe any of the stuff I had faith in, and, and in fact, he was kind of a moral relativist. Um, you know, truth is relative. Nobody can really know. But he said, I just think that's so cool that you have faith, and I just thought, that's so interesting. You know, our, our world loves faith. They just don't like having faith in something. Faith itself is lifted up. Um, and this idea that science is somehow uh, able to and capable of informing all the answers that we have in the world is just simply not true. Uh, I don't want to go too political with this. This was just intriguing. Randy and I, my wife, were watching. Uh, there was an LGBTQ um, uh, forum uh, in Ohio for the Democratic um, you know, candidates, and it was really insightful uh, just to see you know, the way that they're viewing the world and things. And, um, and, and it was interesting, one of the comments that was made by one of the candidates, he said, you know, policy just needs to catch up with science. And they were saying it in, regard, in regards to the fact that they think the government should be paying for people in prison to get um, sex changes, that the government should be um, affirming um, transgender people in the military and all these kinds of things. And they were saying that the, you know, the science is out there, like the government just needs to catch up. And I thought, is the science out there? Did we really, did science prove that there's, that, that people that, are, that want to be girls are actually trapped in a man's body. Does the science prove that? I don't think that's actually been proved. But you can see how quickly that leaks into this idea that, no, we proved it. See, see religion and policy didn't catch up with science. I think science is actually not that inclusive. Same thing with evolution. Science has proved evolution. Has it? Has it proved evolution? I'm pretty sure that's, there's a little bit of belief there, okay, if, you, if you're following me. You can't escape belief. You can't escape faith. So this idea that some people take that I choose not to believe religion, I'm just going to believe science. The key word is there, you're still believing. You're still choosing to believe something, something that you can't prove completely. You can't prove completely evolution. You can't prove completely creation. At some point, and this is, this is all I'm trying to say, at some point you have to choose to believe something. But you believe something based off of what is empirically makes sense, something that, that has good evidence. You have to have good evidence to believe something, especially something you're going to stake your whole life on. So this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you some evidence of why Jesus deserves your attention, at least. Now, some of you in this room might see him as Lord. Some of you in this room might see him as a historical figure that, that maybe was um, interpreted by the Christians to be something he wasn't or never claimed to be. Some of you might just think Jesus was a hoax or maybe he was just something made up. Regardless of what your view is, I, I want to invite you to at least give him a good look. Just give him a good look. And I think that there's compelling evidence that should at least make you give Jesus a good look and, and, and see if he really is who he claims to be. In John chapter 1, um, Jesus is kind of recruiting his disciples, and, uh, and Philip um, found Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, hey, you got to come. The Messiah, he's here. It's this guy named Jesus. He's, he's, let's, go, let's go. And Nathaniel goes, what? Like that guy from Nazareth? He says, classic, classic line, what good could come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. Come and see. And so he did. And what, is, what does Jesus do? He blows him away with this just kind of like prophetic knowledge about the fact that he saw him under a tree earlier, knew exactly what he was reading, et cetera, et cetera. So my, my, my point is I want you guys to come with me and really come with Peter in Peter's defense here to, to ask the question, is Jesus worthy of a closer look um, as we examine who he is? So we're going to get into chapter 4 here uh, in verse 1 through 7. Let me give you a little bit of context for those of you that are just jumping into Acts with us. Um, a man got healed, a lame beggar at Solomon's um, portico. Uh, basically, Peter and John walking into the temple, and they see this guy. He's, he's begging for alms. Um, they say the, the famous line, silver and gold, 
Have I none? As I have, I give unto you. Grab him by the hand. The guy stands up. He's 40 years old. He never walked before. And now he's leaping, running around the temple. Okay, within a matter of minutes, a crowd begins to form in the temple. Now, temple of, of Herod was it's one of the wonders of the world. It's massive, huge temple. And the portico, big, like 40, I don't remember, it was 50, 60 foot um, colonnades in there. This place could hold hundreds, thousands of people. So after this miraculous um, you know, miracle happens, this guy gets healed, all of these Jewish people from Jerusalem start flooding into the temple to see what's going on. What was the source of this power? Who did this? Who caused this, right? And so in chapter 3, Peter takes this opportunity to explain to everyone exactly who did it. And it was Jesus. He makes it very clear. This is the power, the resurrection power of Jesus manifested through us to heal this man. And what do you think happens? 5,000 people get saved in addition to the 3,000 that got saved earlier at Pentecost. So start doing some math here. It says, as we'll see, 5,000 men got saved. That means that there's more than 5,000. So, so literally, the, the church at Jerusalem, within a matter of weeks, has exploded onto the scene. Somewhere upwards of, of 10,000 individuals have been baptized, committed their life to the resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' life was about 25 to 35,000 people. Now, of course, there would be an influx of, of pilgrims coming in to, to be at the feasts, but you figure if, if let's say, on the high side, there's 40,000 people living in Jerusalem, 10,000 of them just got saved. So we're talking 25% of the entire city is now following after Jesus. This is a public and obvious and, and radical thing that's happening. And up until this point, there's been no blowback. There's been no persecution. Things are just going. They're just flying, right? But here in chapter 4, there's a corner that's turned, and we're never going to turn back. In fact, it's never turned back since. The corner that we turn is that persecution now begins. Because as the kingdom of God breaks into the world, there is an enemy who doesn't want it to do so. And the enemy begins from this point forward to stir up opposition against the gospel spreading and moving out. So it's exactly what happens. Let's jump into verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, chapter 4, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, that's the, the, the temple police, the guard, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, just notice this is a side note, but he doesn't say they were proclaiming Jesus' resurrection. What does he say? They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In other words, the message of the apostles was that you too can be resurrected if you believe in Jesus. Like he was resurrected, you too can be. This was their message. Verse 3, they arrested them. Put them in custody until the next day. Why the next day? Because they didn't do trials this late in the day. Okay? They, they had operating hours, 9 to 5, whatever it is. They put them, lock them up so that the next day they can put them on trial and figure out what they're going to do with them. For it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word, verse 4, believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Okay? Now, why are the Sadducees so put out by what's going on in their temple right now? I mean, you would think these guys would be like, woohoo, you know? I mean, we got all these people excited, praising God. Now, there's a few reasons. You might jot them down. There's a few reasons why the Sadducees are so put out. The first reason is because Peter and John are stealing their job. <laughs> the, the priests were the ones that were supposed to be teaching in the temple. Peter and John show up, 
and they start drawing 100 times the, 100 times the size of the crowd that they've been able to draw. Okay? They're, they're in someone else's house. So, so that's, that's frustrating for them. The second reason they're upset, the Sadducees believed that the Messianic age, the age that, that the, the prophets in the Old Testament were talking about, they believed that that had already started. And it already comes. So, so in that, something called the Hasmonean dynasty, you can look that up if you want to write that down. Hasmonean dynasty. There was a little period of time in Israel's history, about 170 BC, where Israel was actually semi-autonomous, meaning that they weren't fully ruled by some outside government. And, and the Sadducees, who I'll explain who they were in a minute, they believed, oh, this is the Messianic age. It's come. Part of the reason they were so blind when Jesus stepped into the scene, who was the Messiah, who was going to bring in the Messianic age, they completely missed it. Okay? Um, thirdly, they did not believe in the resurrection. Now, let me explain really quickly. There's the Sadducees and there's the Pharisees, and we get these two guys confused. The Pharisees were more like the sort of the rabbinical, scholarly theologians of their day. Okay? And they would spend most of their time teaching and preaching in, in synagogues. The Sadducees were an entirely different dish. Okay? These guys, they were a minority group. They were extremely influential and affluent and rich and powerful. These guys ran the temple mafia. And yes, I called it the temple mafia. It literally was a mafia. Why do you think Jesus was so mad? These guys made money hand over fist on Solomon's temple. Um, pardon me, on Herod's temple. Okay? They made money hand over fist, and they did it because they took advantage of the system that God had created for God and man to be connected. They did it as a family, as we'll see. Um, essentially, if you think about like a mobster mentality, okay? You got the mob boss. That's Annas. Annas was the mob boss. He wasn't the high priest at the time, but he pulled all the strings. He held all the power. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was technically the high priest, but he ultimately answers to Annas, okay? Um, these guys together, um, they, they form basically the power seat in all of Jerusalem and in all of Israel, Okay, now, obviously, Rome has the ultimate power because they're the, sort of the sovereign ruling empire. But within Jerusalem, um, the, the Sanhedrin, which was mostly con con comprised of, of Sadducees, these guys called the shots. They held the power. They held the authority. They were aristocrats. They had the power. Okay? Uh, and these are the guys that are just absolutely ticked off by what's happening in their temple. Um, they did not believe in the resurrection. In fact, they didn't believe in much of anything. They were kind of the, the, the religious skeptics, um, the quote-unquote realists, maybe you would say, of their day. They didn't believe in um, angels, demons, afterlife, anything supernatural. They were basically deists. You know what a deist is? Deist is someone that believes God made the earth and then he went off on vacation. Okay? Have fun. So, so they saw the, 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 um, their goal in life is to sort of just live it up because there's no eternal life. There's no need to be saved from some kind of proverbial hell. Their hell is just not having enough power and influence. So they just gathered power and influence. The high priest was a Sadducee. Okay, are you tracking with me? So the fourth reason that these Sadducees were so irritated is because these guys are interfering with their temple racket, just like Jesus did. Imagine how much money they're losing when you have 10,000 people that used to be coming and, 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 and giving money to the money changers and all of this kind of stuff, and now they're over here hearing sermons from Peter and John um, in the temple. These guys are losing money, and that's ultimately what's driving this. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together. Okay, those are the three parties that comprised what was called the Sanhedrin, the 71 members of the high council in Jerusalem. Rulers, elders, scribes in Jerusalem. 
with Annas, who I already talked about, the high priest, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, John and Alexander, we don't know who they are, and all who were of the high priestly, what, family. All of these guys are in bed with the power. All of these guys are ultimately working together to, to, to make sure that they have the power seat. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So here's the question that they ask the disciples. Here's the question. They say, okay, we see the healing. We see the man. Everyone knows he's been healed. And according to Deuteronomic law, according to what Deuteronomy says in the law, you're supposed to take, um, if someone was healed, you're supposed to take it before the priest and have them examine it. Okay, so that's, that's biblical. But the question they're asking the, these guys is, whose name did you heal this guy in? Seems like a fair question. Whose name did you heal this guy in? Now, they already know because Peter has not by any ways pulled punches. I mean, he's been clear. If you read Acts 1 through 3, he's been absolutely clear about whose name this man was healed in. Whose name was it? Jesus Christ. Very clear. Peter made it obvious. Now, Peter has an opportunity here to get off the hook, an opportunity I would have been tempted to take, because all he has to say is, Yahweh, and they say, all right, what can we do? And there's some truth to that, because Jesus, of course, is if you have Trinitarian theology here, Jesus is, in a sense, Yahweh, right? So, so they, he could have said that, but he doesn't do that. Peter mans up. He owns it. He declares without any shame the name of Jesus Christ. Now, you've got to imagine Peter, the last time he stood before Annas and Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, you know where he was? He was in the courtyard. And a little girl said, hey, aren't you one of the guys that followed around Jesus? And what did he do? He denied Christ three times times. Now, you better believe Peter is not going to make that mistake again. But here's the beautiful thing about it. Luke, the author of Acts, makes it so clear. It's not because Peter just got it together. It's because Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives in Peter, and because of that, Peter sticks his chest out, and he goes, I'll tell you who healed this guy. It was Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one, as he'll say, you killed, and God resurrected. Peter's bold in this. There's always going to be a temptation to use the word God. I'm not saying it's wrong to use the word God, but there's always going to be a temptation to use the word God in secular settings because it's more accepted. People don't have a problem with God. You could mean anything and everything by God. You could mean creation is God. You could mean a pantheistic plurality of gods. You could mean a universalistic God. Okay, you could mean anything. But when you say Jesus' name, you are bringing specificity into who it is that you believe in. Now, I know and I understand that you're also bringing all the baggage of all the crazy people that have done crazy things in the name of Jesus. And, and that's just a cost that you're going to have to be willing to pay. Okay? It's messy, but Jesus' name is what Peter declares. He pulls no punches. He lays it all out there. The most powerful men in Jerusalem, he says, without even taking a breath, I'll tell you exactly whose name it is. So here's why I think this text is applicable to us this morning, okay? I think it's applicable because the same examining that these guys are doing with the apostles, um, which is really an examination, let's be honest, of Jesus himself, that same examination is happening today. The same examination is happening today. These Sadducees are sitting in a seat. I'm going I'm to use a phrase and then I'll explain it. They're sitting in the seat of presuppositional religious skeptics. Presuppositional means they've already made up their mind. And skeptics means that they're skeptical. 
okay? Um, so these Sadducees, they're examining the person of Christ in the disciples from the seat of having already decided what they think about it. And I would suggest to you that the way that the world is examining Christ right now, the culture we live and swim in, um, is examining Christ right now is exactly the same. Presuppositional religious skepticism. They have already decided what they think about you, about the Bible, about Jesus. So we have to understand that. These guys are coming from the same place that the world is coming from. And they're looking more to shut up the work of the words of Jesus than they are to tune into it. Okay? It's the same audience. It's also the same examining question. The question that they asked then in our text is the same question that people are asking of Christ now. And the question is simply this. uh, By what power or by what name did you do this? A.K.A. is what you're doing in conformity with our religious system? That's what they're asking. They're asking Peter, they're asking John, is what you're doing in conformity with our religious system? Did you know that the secular world has a religious system? Even the ones that don't claim to believe in God, they have a religious system. They, they have a paradigm with which they operate in. And if you do not fit within that paradigm, you will be excommunicated or worse. Okay? Um, even the person that says all roads lead to God, all truths are equally valid. That's only true until you say that their truth is not valid. And then your truth no longer becomes valid. Isn't that interesting? Even the most open-minded people are closed-minded as soon as they realize that you are not open-minded in the way that they are open-minded. There is no such thing as open-mindedness. Everyone has a paradigm, a worldview of what they believe is true. And as soon as you tell them that theirs is wrong, all of a sudden, there's no inclusion for you. That's why Christianity and postmodernism just are not working very well together. Because Christianity says there is one truth, and postmodernism says all truth is true, except for the truths that say your truth isn't true. Are you with me? You have a question? That's universalism. I mean, that's, that's the idea. That, and we'll actually, I'll actually get to that in a minute. In terms of how to talk to them about that, I'm going to let your group talk through that because I think that's a really good question to discuss. And that's actually one of the questions. Um, so you guys will have a chance to really field that. Um, but that's a, great, that's a great question. That's the idea that really there's one God. It's the elephant thing. We all are grabbing a different part of the elephant. And based on what you're touching, that you think that's God. Um, it just doesn't really work. Okay, so last week we talked about the credibility of Jesus. And if you haven't heard that, you might go back and listen to it. This week we're going to talk about, I'm um, pardon me, I got it backwards. Last week we talked about the relevance of Jesus. This week we're going to talk about the credibility of Jesus. So three quick things and then we'll get into discussions. Three reasons to give the message of Jesus a real look. Three reasons. Number one, the exclusivity of his message. Why don't you just write them all down and then we'll go through them. Number one, the exclusivity of his message. Number two, the credibility of his message. Number three, the resiliency of his message, the exclusivity of his message, the credibility of his message, and the resiliency of his message. Verse 8, then Peter, listen to how Peter responds to this question. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, 
let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that's the fourth time Peter said that to these guys, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man standing before you well, verse 11, listen to this, the Jesus, or this Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. I don't have time to get into that. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. Let these words sink in. This is the most offensive thing you could ever say in our culture right now. Are you ready? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That went over like a load of bricks when Peter said it, and it'll go over like a load of bricks when you say it. Culture hates, hates that idea. It hates it. Let me tell you, first of all, why that was so offensive when Peter said it. It was offensive when Peter said it because these guys, rightly so, believed that there was only one name that could save, and that was Yahweh. The great Shema, they grew up rehearsing it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Okay? Um, the entire Old Testament is about Israel trying to stop worshiping other gods. <laughs> God's just trying to get these guys to worship him. And here's Jesus and his disciples coming along saying, actually, it's in Jesus' name that we should be saved. Can you imagine how they would be feeling about that? In that moment, the undergirding non-negotiable tenet of Judaism is that God, Yahweh, is the only deliverer. And now these apostles, his disciples, are declaring Jesus' name is the only name that we can be saved in. What Peter is doing here in this statement, he's putting pressure that will only allow one of two things to be believed. Okay, the first thing is either Jesus is the ultimate idolatry in the history of humanity and Judaism. And let's be honest, if Jesus is not God, can we get serious for a minute? He is the ultimate idolatry. We worship Jesus. We put him as equal with God. Okay, so if, if the Jews are right and Christianity is wrong, we're in trouble. Okay, Jesus, if he is not God, is the ultimate idolatry. So Peter is saying either Jesus is God or he's a complete heretic. Okay? That's, that's basically what he's leaving with. There's really no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You know, people want to say, all roads lead up the same mountain. Have you heard that? God's sitting at the top. He, he just allowed lots of you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, Christianity, all of these things, they lead up the same mountain. Um, and and that's, that's kind of what people want to say. Does verse 12 allow for that? Did, did, did Peter and Jesus himself, did he leave room for there to be more than one way up the mountain? Unless you're completely misreading the Bible or completely deluded, you cannot believe that Christianity fits into the paradigm of the universalist. You just can't. Okay, well, this is just what Peter says, right? Okay, well, what did Jesus say? Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. Jesus' words. Maybe, maybe not. Here it is. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say I'm one of the ways. He didn't say I'm a way. He didn't say I could be a way. He said I'm the only way. 
Jesus' words. So this idea that Jesus is just some sort of like hippie guy that just really wanted to love everybody and be inclusive and all of this, it's just not the historical Jesus. So you have to reinvent Jesus to get that guy. This is not the message of the early church. It's not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of the gospel. It's not the message of Jesus. There is one way to heaven. Okay, uh, the, the apostles said this over again, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, not Mary, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, Jesus. He is the only way. Okay, this is offensive to the, the, the people that would have heard it, the Sanhedrin, because they're thinking, how can Jesus be the only way when Yahweh is the only way? Well, here's an idea. Okay, uh, let, let me tell you a story. So I was, I was in here talking to a, a friend who's a non-Christian. He's very much the universalist mindset. You know, he's like, I just think that all religions are true and they're all going the same direction and everything. And, and I said, okay, okay, okay. You know, and I was telling him the gospel and he was saying, you know, I just, I'd love to believe in the Bible. I just feel like I'm too skeptical. And I thought, you know, that's awesome. I told him, that's awesome because the disciples were skeptical. That's why Jesus had to spend 40 days walking around, having them touch his hands, so they would believe. These guys were skeptical. They didn't even see the resurrection coming, and they were not anticipating that at all, right? So they were skeptical, and he goes, yeah, but I just think, you know, how can any religion say they have the, the, the corner, uh, the market cornered on truth? I mean, he's like, think about how much knowledge there is in the universe. We only know a little bit of it. I'm like, I could not agree with you more. He's like, how can I, just this little person on the earth, know what all truth and reality in the universe is? I said, you can't. Unless, unless the one that created it came into it and became part of it, then you could know. Then you could understand. You know why God never really gave his name to Israel? Because there was never a name that could have described him. The best that God could come up with was, I am that I am. And even that name itself, it was protected by the Jews. They didn't even tell anyone how to pronounce it, the Yahweh, you know. Uh, we just have the letters of it. Why do you think that in the Old Testament, there was never really an importance on, on being saved by a name? It was more the importance of God's law. If you obey God's law, then you're one of his people. Because the name of God has never been able to describe him. But now, all of a sudden, in the New Testament, these guys are saying, no, it's the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the first time that we can actually see God in a person. Jesus is the language of God. John calls him the Logos, the Word of God. That God the Father and all of his attributes are displayed and communicated like an interface through the person of Jesus Christ, who's still fully God and fully man. Now, humans can come to Jesus and see who God is in his personality through the person of Jesus. Because God became part of his creation and communicated his nature through Jesus. Isn't that incredible? This idea that, that we are all going up a mountain, it's the, it's the perfect picture of false religion. Every religion will tell you that you are going up a mountain. It's all about what you do. Do more. Do better. Either it's Eastern meditation, looking within. Either it's Islam, do good, more, more good works and bad works. They literally think there's a scale. And when you get up there, you're, you're going to tip it. I mean, every religious system will tell you, you do, you do, you do, and you will get up the mountain and you will achieve God. What does Christianity say? Christianity says God came off the mountain, came down the mountain, because he knew that you couldn't get up it. And he picked you up, 
and he carried you up the mountain. In fact, he probably knocked you out and threw you over his shoulder because you were so obsessed with all the stupid, pointless stuff at the bottom. I, he knocked me out, okay? I was not looking for Jesus. He found me dead in my trespasses and sins. He came into the world. He picked me up. He paid for my sin. He gave me his righteousness. He picked me up and took me up the hill. That's the gospel. And there is only one way up the mountain, and it's Jesus. Amen? Amen. Don't be ashamed of that. Do not be ashamed of that. It's the truth. Now, you have to believe it. You have to believe something no matter what you do. You don't think there's any belief involved in any other worldview? If you can get your head around the fact that you have to believe something, then you figure out, well, what something is worth believing. I believe Jesus is credible. My point is simply this. You should give Jesus a good look this week because if he really is God and you don't worship him, you're in trouble. Can we just be honest? Jesus didn't leave room for you to be like, well, I was really, really, you know, I was really into this other religion and I was just authentic, you know, I was authentically, you know, doing this. I was authentically doing hot yoga and in my yoga pants, you know, I was authentically, you know, eating, you know, like offering a little sacrifice to this little God. I mean, I was authentic and Jesus would say, I was pretty clear. I said, I'm the only way. And if he really said it and he really is who he said he is, then we have to answer for that. And that was the next thing I told my friend when, he, when, he, when, he, when I brought the idea that God came into creation. I said, if he did come into creation, then you're responsible for what he said, especially if you know it. Sobering, right? The second reason to give Jesus a good look, the credibility of his message. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were, what, uneducated common men. Uneducated is agramatia, a meaning no or none. Whenever you put a before something like amoral, asexual, a whatever, it means there's none. So a, they were uneducated. Common, the Greek word idiotes, probably pronouncing it wrong, but you can guess where we get, what word we got from that. Okay. Um, they were uneducated common men. Now he's not saying that these guys didn't know how to read and write. Okay. Obviously they did. These guys were not educated theologians. They didn't go to seminary. Paul was. These guys weren't. These were fishermen, businessmen, tax collectors. And these guys are speaking as though they have six doctorates in biblical theology. They're pulling out Old Testament truths and displaying them before these guys, and they're really just zinging them, right? And, and listen to what they said. And they recognized, what? That they had been with Jesus. You know, they had the same reaction to Jesus. Who is this guy? This, this peasant carpenter from Cape Junction? No offense, Bruce. Okay, like who is this guy? He doesn't know anybody. He doesn't know anything. He wasn't trained by any famous rabbi. He's walking around Israel drawing thousands of people and teaching with authority. That's the reaction they had to Jesus, so they killed him. And now they're having the same reaction to his disciples. Why? Because Acts isn't the story of the disciples. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus continuing through the disciples. That's the reality. And let me just say this. The weaker you are, the more Christ can be glorified in you. Okay? Now that pushes back against our Western ideas that we want to be really comfortable, really in control, and really powerful, and we want to make a God in an image where if we just have enough faith, we can have that. That is a lie. That is Joel Osteen theology. Throw it in the garbage. 
okay? Your weakness glorifies God's strength. Do you understand? In your weakness, God is made strong because he can use you. It's been said when you're on your back, it means you're looking at heaven, that you can actually get your eyes on God. That's the reality. This is why Paul said that God left a thorn in his flesh so that he would actually be a a, a source of glory for God, so that he would not be um, taking any of the credit for what God did through him. These uneducated men... So my point is that the credibility of Christ is firstly seen in the fact that he does great things through not great people, including myself, okay? He does miraculous things through unmiraculous people. The other thing is they got a healed guy right there, and nobody can refute it. Look at verse 14. Seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, he's right there. I mean, everybody knew this guy. For, he's 40 years old. Imagine, like, you, you, you know the, the guy that everybody knows. There's, a, there's one in every in town. In Medford, it was downtown Dan. You remember downtown Dan? Everybody knows downtown Dan, you know? Like, there's always a guy. Everybody, everybody knew this guy. He, he was just the guy. He was always at the temple, always there, every day. 40 years old, man. And everybody knew he couldn't walk. And there he is, standing there. What are you going to do to that? What are you going to do about that? Just there it is, evidence. 15, but when they had commanded them, to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. There's nothing they can say about this. They're really between a rock and a hard place. If they had their way, they would have killed these guys right then, but they're, they're basically in an office because people look up to them. And most, a large majority of their city now worships Jesus and is saved. What are they going to do? And the other compelling evidence of this is that they don't even try to argue the resurrection. Do you notice that? They don't even bring it up. I mean, Luke shows us in the beginning of the chapter what was so irritating to these guys was the resurrection, but yet they never try to combat it. Why? Because they knew there was no arguing the resurrection of Jesus. Look at 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they call them. Charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Zing. For we cannot but speak of what we have what? Seen and heard. I mean, Peter's like, what do you think we're going to do, man? We saw the resurrected Christ. We're just going to listen to your threat and go sit on our hands? Go get our fishing boats and, and just go live the rest of our life knowing we've li- we're living a lie? Knowing that Jesus raised from the dead, he's the king of the universe, and he asks for our allegiance, and we're just going to go back and keep fishing? Are you insane? We've seen the risen Lord. We felt him with our hands. That's what Peter says when he opens up his epistle. And, uh, he, he says, or I'm sorry, John says in 1 John 1 through 4, he's like, the, the one that we've handled, the one that we felt, the one that we touched, the one that we saw, we've seen the resurrection. It happened. It was so real to these guys. The, the disciples were not irrational men who were caught up in some kind of an emotional thing. They were rational, blue-collared, level-headed guys that were doing something because they were so convinced that this guy who said he was God really raised from the dead. They were convinced. And there were hundreds more like them. And Luke didn't write this 500 years later. Luke wrote the book of Acts when people could still go ask him. You know that? And Luke, he was a smart guy. He included details in there that he didn't even need to, 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 to put. Like, like earlier when I listed the Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, why are those guys on the list? They don't need to be there. 
they're there because Luke is a historian. He's showing the credibility of the fact. You can go ask these guys. You want to go talk to Annas? He's still alive. You want to go talk to, to, to Caiaphas? I mean, he's writing to the Theophilus. Remember, in the beginning of Acts, he says, oh, excellent Theophilus, I'm writing an account to you so that you might know without a doubt who Jesus was and what he did. He's like, you want to go ask these guys? Go ask them. They're around. Okay? It's not as though this was like, like Islam was written 600 years after Christ, right? Uh, th- this is right after the people were still alive. This was a credible thing. That Jesus is a credible message. Number three, not only um, the exclusivity of his message, not only the credibility of his message, but thirdly, the resiliency of his message. I don't have time to read the, the rest of the text, but let me just summarize for you. They threaten these guys. They say, hey, if you keep preaching Jesus, you're going down. And so what do they do? They go back home with their hands in the air, and they say, tell their friends, guess what just happened? (laughs) We just got threatened by the highest council in Jerusalem, and guess what we did? We proclaimed Jesus. We didn't go on the defensive. We went on the offensive. Then they launch into this prayer, asking God for boldness to keep speaking. They didn't ask God for comfort. They didn't ask God for ease. They didn't ask God that, that things would just get better. They prayed for more opportunities to share the gospel. That's what they prayed for. They didn't even pray for safety. They just prayed for more opportunities. I mean, what are you going to say to these guys? They're unstoppable, unquenchable, because they're so convinced of the reality of Jesus' crucifixion and that the good news of the gospel is something everyone needs to hear. And the Holy Spirit is blowing through these guys like wind in a sail, and they're just moving forward. The Sanhedrin can't do anything to stop it. You ever want to get the church to grow? Start persecuting it. You just can't stop it. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, man. Every time Christians get persecuted, explodes. Christianity explodes. It's the reality. The ultimate result of the Sanhedrin's attempt to fear, with fear to shut these guys up is verse 31, when they had prayed, the place with which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God in boldness. That's the outcome of this entire thing. The Sadducees put all the weight and all the power they can to try to shut these guys up, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit refills these guys. Earthquake comes, the ground is split, and they're ready to go out and do it again. Can't stop it. Now, really, I'm not worried about the church. Everybody's worried about the church. You know, what are we going to do? I mean, they're, they're talking about, dude, they said it on the LGBTQ thing. They said, you know, we're going to revoke. Uh, one of the guys, Beto Roar, said if he gets elected, he's going to revoke of tax-exempt status for churches that don't um, support LGBTQ, you know, thing. I mean, and I'm just like, oh, so if we say what the Bible says, we might lose our tax exemption. Okay, whatever. I'll get a job. I don't care. You know, I mean, the, you can't stop the gospel. If, in fact, if, if persecution comes on America, dude, you're going to see revival. The thing that is really stalling America out in the gospel right now is we're all so stinking distracted with just stupid things like Netflix. I mean, it's just like Netflix just rolls. You don't even have to hit next. It's the next one, and the next one, and the next one. We're just like lulled to sleep by distractions. The, the church will grow when it's persecuted. So I'm really not worried about the church in America. What I'm worried about is the complacency of the church in America. Amen? That's all I got. So we're going to get into groups. I got six questions for you. You got about 15 to 20 minutes.